The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 23. Altitude. Altitude. Tower is release to you. Runway 4 11 20 0 4 0 Clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire Hey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for listening. First, I'm an idiot. If you listened to last week's episode or two weeks ago with Cosmo, I goofed. Apparently, I'm not an audio engineer um, and had a track overlying another one. I have re-uploaded it. Some people said it did it automatically. Others didn't. So if you're listening to that episode and you have an issue around minute 19, the corrected version is up there. Again, he's the host of the Low Level Podcast. And right about the time it started goofing, he's talking about getting shot flying over Missoula. So he's got a phenomenal story. He's a good dude. Um, Redownload that if you had issues. Again, I apologize. One day I'll be better. This episode, we're going to talk about the F-16 mishap that happened at Shaw Air Force Base. Loss of life for Lieutenant David Smits. Um... I'm going to post the accident investigation board report, which is going to, this is where I'm getting all the content for this episode. It'll be up on the afterburnpodcast.com. I'm also going to have a link for the Lieutenant Smith's foundation.org on there, or you can just go to that website. If you're looking to support a good cause, swing over there and you can support his legacy in helping young aviators find their path. Uh, again, if I like to thank all those, you know, who are swinging over to iTunes and rating and reviewing the show. That definitely helps uh, the podcast grow. It's always, it's been performing very well. And again, it's thanks to you guys uh, taking that time to one, listen, uh, that's awesome. And then two, go over there and just hitting uh, subscribe and leaving a rating. This episode is sponsored by Wingman Watch. You guys by now have figured out that I'm a firm believer in Wingman Watch. Founded by a fighter pilot, veteran owned. Go over to wingmanwatch.com. I guarantee you'll find something you love over there. You can use the code RAIN10 and receive 10% off. Or even better, if you and your group are looking to build a watch, swing over there. They'll take it from start to finish and handle all the logistics, all the build. They make it super easy for you, and you're going to get a high-quality timepiece. So with that being said, let's get into the podcast with me. All right, a little bit different for this week's podcast, no guest. Instead, I'm going to break down the F-16 mishap, which occurred on 30 June 2020 at Shaw Air Force Base, resulted in the loss of life of Lieutenant David Smits, call sign Meser. Um, if you're looking to support a good cause, lieutenantsmitsfoundation.org, 
I'll have a link up to it on my website, theafterburnpodcast.com, if you can't find it, uh, but lieutenantsmithsfoundation.org, as well as this report. This is an accident investigation report. It's the way it works in the Air Force when there is a mishap. There are two different processes that happen. First is a safety investigation board. That takes 30 days to conclude. That information is privileged, so think of it like a uh, attorney-client privilege. That stays internal to the Air Force, and the intent of that is to identify what happened and get that information out as quickly as possible to the people it will affect and potentially prevent another mishap like it. So again, that's privileged information. We're not looking at that. We're looking at the accident investigation, which again, I'll have that link up on the the afterburnpodcast.com where you can see it. This is what's releasable to the public. This is a 49-page document, and it breaks down in detail by the second what occurred on 30 June uh, that led to the ultimate fatality of Lieutenant Smits. So I'm going to try and minimize jumping around, but I'm going to go through the accident investigation report. There'll be some repeat information But up front, the first page of this details what the Accident Investigation Board president, which in this case is a flag officer, so a general officer because there was a fatality involved, what he determined the initial cause or the cause of the the mishap was. And so on uh, page three here, it says the board president found by proponents of evidence that the cause of the mishap was the mishap pilot's failure to correctly interpret the approach lighting system and identify the runway threshold during the first landing attempt which resulted in severely damaged landing gear. Additionally, the Accident Investigation Board president found by preponderance of evidence two factors substantially contributed to the mishap. One, the SOF, the supervisor of flying, that's another F-16 pilot that's sitting up in the control tower that is there to assist pilots as well as ATC and basically be the link between the two. So if there's weather rolling in, if there's an emergency, that SOF, again, is that link between air traffic control and pilots airborne to help make smart decisions. So in this case, the SOF chose not to consult the aircraft manufacturer, which resulted in the decision to attempt a cable arrestment in lieu of a controlled ejection. We're definitely going to talk about this a lot more later on. And then two, the series of ejection seat malfunctions occurred, which resulted in the mishap pilot impacting the ground while still in the ejection seat. Again, we're going to dig into that as well. All right, moving through the AIB report, next couple pages table of contents, as well as acronyms. I apologize. This one is going to be acronym heavy, and I'm going to try my best to not revert back to using acronyms and just spell it out. But if you do read the report, as you get marching in there, uh, there are definitely a lot of acronyms that go along with this. But on uh, page eight here, on July 2nd, 2020, General Holmes, the commander of Air Combat Command, appointed Major General, two-star General Randall Efferson to conduct the accident investigation board. Again, as I mentioned, any kind of fatality requires a flag officer to be the board president. That board is comprised then of a slew of experts. So in this case, it has a pilot member, a medical member, a maintenance member, a recorder. I'll see who else is in there. Legal is also involved in that. So that team gets together and they dig through everything that went on. They travel typically from other bases to that point, and they'll spend however long it takes to go through and dig through everything. So it's a pretty thorough process that happens there. All right, on 30 June, this is the summary, 2020, the mishap pilot flying an F-16CM, tail number 940043, assigned to the 77th Fighter Squadron, 20th Fighter Wing, Shaw Air Force Base, engaged in a night 
mission qualification training flight near Shaw Air Force Base. So near and dear to my heart, I was a former gambler. That's the 77th Fighter Squadron, three squadrons at Shaw Air Force Base, the 77th, the 79th, which is the Tigers, and the 55th, the Shooters. So uh, mission qualification training, everyone goes through the B course. That's initial qualification in the F-16. takes about uh, nine months there. And then you go off to your first duty assignment. In this case, for Lieutenant Smith's call sign Mezer, his first duty assignment was Shaw Air Force Base, and now he is going through mission qualification training, which typically takes about six months. And that is where you become a combat mission-ready wingman. So this is his first night seed suppression of enemy air defenses sortie, um, and also his first night one. So the next few pages just go into what Air Combat Command is, what Shaw Air Force Base is, what Ninth Air Force is. Um, and then on page 11, we get into the mission summary. So on 30 June 2020, the mishap flight was a four-ship of F-16s, and it consisted of the call sign MEET-41. As the mishap flight lead, uh, MEET-42 is a mishap wingman, MEET-43 as a mishap element lead, and MEET-44 as a mishap pilot. So again, when you're reading this, there are a lot of acronyms, and you'll you'll definitely see that. All right, this was a mission qualification sortie, again, MQT. Uh, again, that first phase where you're learning how to be a combat mission-ready wingman, doing that specific mission task for that base. So Shaw Air Force Base is a seed base, so suppression of enemy air defenses. That's its high focus. Obviously, F-16 is a multi-role fighter, but seed and then DCA, defensive counter air, is where we spent a lot of our time. That's where Shaw spends a lot of its time focusing on. So that's what Mezer is doing. It's a night sortie, and he's going to go do air-to-air refueling and then conduct a seed sortie on the Bulldog Moa, which is about 120 miles southwest of Shaw. It's right over, over top of Augusta there in Georgia, so not too far away. Ultimately, Mezer was not able to get gas, which required his element to return back to Shaw early. The next section goes into planning. At 1825 local, the mishap flight conducted their briefing in accordance with the 20th Ops Group standards. So, pretty standard there. About an hour and a half briefing. Crew's going to get dressed after that. So, G-suit, harness, get their step brief from the top three, who is another F-16 pilot. And then he's going to brief weather, any kind of significant field status, notums, etc. In this case, it's a standard Georgia summer evening there are thunderstorms there are clouds there's rain so they have a divert or an alternate set to carry extra gas meaning they'll have to terminate their mission earlier than normal in order to return back to base so they have a bingo fuel which is higher bingo allows you to stop what you're doing and get back to your recovery point which is shawl air force base in this case they have a bingo which is a little bit extra gas which allows them to fly to shawl shoot an approach if the weather is bad and they can't get in there they have enough gas to fly all the way back to Warner Robins, Georgia, to Robins Air Force Base. So it looks like they're brief. The flight lead emphasized techniques for keeping situational awareness and how to conduct air refueling at night. And the briefing lasts approximately 15, long, 15 minutes longer than planned due to the sortie com, uh, complexity and the amount of instruction required. So again, this is his night first AR, so doing air refueling, as well as night seed sortie. There's definitely a lot packed in here and a lot going on. All right, part of the brief is doing a risk assessment, and it is a way to quantify the number of factors and the level of risk involved in the mission so that you can appropriately mitigate that risk smartly. So in this case, the uh, 
flight lead determined that the risk was moderate due to night AR, thunderstorms, a wet runway, and being the first time that the mishap, mishap wingman, sorry, I can't talk, words are hard, but the first time the mishap wingman and mishap pilot uh, was to fly a seed mission. So it sounds like number two and number four, number four being Mezzer there, um, both new to this ball game. So this required the director of operations, so the number two guy in the squadron, to sign off on this. And it says the mishap flightly miscalculated the level of risk and neglected to include risk values for landing after 2200 local, IMC conditions, so instrument meteorological conditions en route and in the working area, and greater than five days since the last flight for both the mishap pilot and the mishap wingman. And it says additionally two risk categories, upgrade and MQT, or sorry, upgrade slash MQT and never flown mission type. So two different categories were included in the total score, but actually applied to both the mishap pilot and the mishap wingman separately. And their individual contributions to the total score should have doubled based upon guidance at the bottom of the form. These changes would have increased the risk management score from a 30 to a 51, and that would have required the operations group commander approval. So that is the first 06, first colonel in the chain. He owns both or all three squadrons. So moral of the story here is the risk management, it should have been a higher score and elevate it to a higher level of review. And normally when something like this happens, it's not uncommon, or I guess it's it happens. But when it does, then you typically look to reduce risk by removing things that aren't needed, especially in a training environment. So in this case, again, this is not to Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback it, but an option might have been to knock off the seed portion of it and just do air refueling, et cetera. So there's, that's why we have risk management, and it's hopefully to catch this stuff early on. So it says the pre-flight the, um, was, looks like it was normal. The mishap flight was impressed with the mishap pilot's preparedness and timeliness despite the intricacy of the required setup procedures for the weapon system, et cetera. C definitely has a lot to set up as far as the avionics of the jet, so setting up the targeting pod, setting up the harm targeting system, setting up the, the harm, the high-speed anti-ration missile. There's a lot going on, so... Um, especially doing this at night, seems like your essay is always cut on, cut in half, at least mine at night, because you can't see. So Mezzer's doing well, and I didn't mention in the beginning, but uh, Mezzer has done well his entire career. I think we'll get to it later in the in the or in this report here. But um, so all's normal. He's prepared and doesn't look like he's struggling. So here is the summary of the flight. All right, at uh, twenty one zero one local. Mishap flight departed Shaw Force Base and joined with a KC-135 call sign Turbo 27. And they were to conduct air refueling in the Bulldog MOA. Again, that's over Augusta. The refueling was delayed while Turbo 27 exited a dense layer of clouds and relocated to a different altitude block. The mishap flight lead and the mishap element lead refueled without incident. And the mishap wingman, some interpret as this number two, uh, on his second ever air refueling attempt and first night air refueling attempt was able to receive fuel. He bobbled somewhat, uh, required approximately 10 minutes, so twice the amount of time that the mishap pilot and the mishap element lead. I think that might be written wrong, but it could just be me. It says MP and uh, mishap element lead, but I think that's a mishap flight lead and the mishap element lead. They got gas as normal. 
number two is struggling with it, and he was not able to completely fill his tanks. Uh, he ended air refueling approximately 1,000 pounds below the planned offload. So now Mezer, the mishap pilot, his air refueling attempt, however, ended after being unable to meet the intense formation requirements to receive fuel. Following his unsuccessful air refueling attempt, the mishap pilot is heard expressing frustration over the cockpit voice recorder after being unable to receive fuel. The mishap element lead and the mishap pilot, so number three and number four, were required to return to Shaw. So during the return to Shaw, the mishap pilot is heard once again expressing frustration at having to return to base early and struggles to maintain proper formation spacing and airspeed while trailing the mishap element lead. So at approximately 16 nautical miles from Shaw Air Force Base, the mishap element lead communicated in a lighthearted tone. Well, that was not the way to start your tanking experience. I, I definitely read that out of that tone. And then follows more sincerely with, that was really challenging. In response, Mezer exhale, uh, exhales and says, um, no excuse. So this, I think, is pretty important here. You know, putting yourself in the mindset of Mezer, he was a prior C-17 loadmaster, had done really well. He was an evaluator, so he rose to the top ranks of the C-17 loadmaster. Uh, again, that evaluator is giving check rides to other people. So you know he has his stuff together. Not everyone gets that position. And then, again, it's later in the report, but he did really well in uh, pilot training as well as F-16 training. That's not always the case. So he's a solid dude, solid uh, pilot and aviator. And so I know having been in situations similar to him where you feel like you're the wedge, so you're the guy letting the team down, it, it's really crappy. So the last thing a fighter pilot wants to be is letting his team down. And I'm just guessing here, but as Mezer is traveling back, you know, this seed sortie was dedicated to number two and him in order to get their MQT done or get one of their rides done in MQT. And now because he couldn't get gas, he had to return early. Uh, so he's going to be incomplete for the sortie. They're going to have to generate, you know, it's going to be another night, another day. And even with night, there's only a couple night weeks we do in the F-16 or most squadrons do. So you might not do a night week, every, but every couple months or two night weeks every couple months. So the chances of getting that ride again might be limited. And all these, this is weighing on them, I'm sure. So compartmentalizing is a huge piece of this, and it's challenging to do, right? He's got a lot of weight on his shoulders, and it's clear by what he's communicated to number three as well as into his HUD tape there. The other piece here, the fact that this is his first time doing night refueling, it's it's suboptimal, especially doing on a seed sortie, which is really complex at a different base or a relatively new base to him, as well as you factor in COVID and limited flying, which again, I keep saying it, we'll get into it later in the report, but it's definitely something to consider here. Anyone who says their first night tanking went smoothly is either Robin Olds or just absolutely lying to you. I remember mine, it was a goat rope. So, um, you know, a lot, a lot is going on here. So getting to the summary of the accident. So Shaw Air Force Base is equipped with an instrument landing system, ILS. Approach to runways 22 right and 04 left. So there's two runways at Shaw. One, I think, is about 10,000 feet. The other one's 8,000 feet. I could look it up. But that, that ping has been kicked off the iceberg for me. And so the ILS, that allows pilots to shoot and approach. So through the weather without seeing the runway, 
You can shoot the approach both vertically and horizontally to be lined up with the runway, break out of the weather, and then safely land the aircraft. So experienced pilots, uh, they're qualified down to 300 feet and one nautical mile. It can be lowered a little bit more by the ops group commander. But again, that's the weather you need. Messer's case, it's going to be higher. It breaks down the instrument approach system uh, just a little bit more. But saying 2-2 right, it begins at 4.3 nautical miles from the end of the runway. Actually goes a little bit further, but that's the final approach fix. And the whole point is to take you from the final approach fix on a 2.8 degree descent, in the case of runway 2-2 right, all the way down to 440 feet MSL, which is your decision altitude. So you're either in the weather or you can see the runway and safely land the aircraft has the approach in there. So at 22-24 local, the mishap pilot was trailing the mishap element lead by two and a half nautical miles and established on the localizer's lateral guidance. So he's got left-right line up with the runway there. He's in radar trail, so typically on the recovery, we'll do a radar trail recovery at night or when in the weather. So number two, three, and four are following number one. They have a radar lock. It's a procedure that fighters fly, especially the F-16, with the radar in order to get back to the field as well as minimize the amount of saturation for air traffic control. So that formation is considered one, and it's on the formation to maintain the deconfliction there. So it looks like 18 seconds after intercepting and descending on the glide slope, the mishap pilot, so Mezer radioed that his gear was down, and the air traffic control tower acknowledged and issued landing clearance. Prior to transition to visual cues, the mishap pilot executed an ILS approach to runway 22 right with minor deviations and corrections. So normal, normal approach there. Two minutes after lowering the landing gear at an altitude of 620 feet above the ground and 1.8 nautical miles from the runway, the mishap pilot transitioned from the ILS guidance to visual cues for the runway. Relatively normal to do in a fighter, so the instrument approach system is going to take you 1,000 feet down the runway. Um, and if you think about that, as you flare and round out, now you're going to touch down somewhere around 1,500 feet down the runway. Well, especially in a fighter, runway behind you is never a good thing. So if the weather allows and the visual cues allows, you'll transition and shorten your aim point. So you're going to descend below the glide path in order to land in the first 1,000 feet of the runway there. And that's what Mezzer is doing here. So pretty normal practice. Runway 22 right is equipped with a precision approach path indicator, PAPI, um, as well as an approach lighting system, which is sequence flashing lights. So the PAPI is a, is a visual cue. It's consisted of four lights. Um, and depending on if you're above or below the glide slope, you're going to see different colors. So it's white and red lights, and they change based on your glide path. So if you're on glide path going to that 1,000-foot mark, you're going to see two white two red. Normally, again, if the conditions allow for it, you're going to transition your aim point prior or short of that thousand foot mark, so towards the threshold, which means as you're getting in close to the runway, you should start seeing about three red lights and one white light, meaning you're slightly below the glide path. That would be a normal kind of everyday occurrence in the F-16. If you're high, you're going to see four white lights. If you're low, you're going to see four red lights. So nothing here seems uh, crazy or abnormal at this point. All right, so at 1.8 nautical miles from the runway, the mishap pilot 
was established on course, both localizer and glide slope. So he's got vertical and horizontal guidance at this point. He steepened his descent, as I was discussing there, from the 2.82 degree electronic ILS glide slope to a 4.5 degree descent in order to intercept a 2.5 degree approach using visual cues. They really get into, the, again, the weeds here. But again, he's just steepened up his approach a little bit. And by all accounts, nothing too extreme that, that stands out to me, at least. And actually, it goes on. This maneuver is typical, but a pilot should set their aim point on or just beyond the green threshold lights. So the end of the runway, or beginning of the runway, rather, is denoted at night with a row of green lights. So you can see and you know where it is. In this case, uh, Mezer, he erroneously set his aim point to land at the 1,000-foot light bar, which is 1,000 feet short of the runway. At approximately 1.8 nautical miles from the runway, the Pappy lights are clearly visible in the heads-up display at the HUD. As the mishap pilot flew toward the 1,000-foot light bar, again, 1,000 feet prior to the beginning of the runway, the vertical ILS guidance indicated that he was well below the guide path, and the visual guidance of the Pappy would have also indicated that. So again, he's probably starting to see four red at this point. The mishap pilot did not declutter his HUD which left the aircraft symbology superimposed over the runway environment and would have made the landing slightly more challenging. So again, here you have the ability to declutter the HUD. It gets rid of some stuff that you don't need to hopefully enable you to see the runway environment better through the heads-up display in the landing environment. That is a pretty normal thing to do, to declutter your HUD. But um, I've forgotten it, and I think probably everyone has. So the remainder of Mezzer's approach was stable, Altitude, airspeed, angle of attack were all normal. So nothing surprising there. He is just getting well below the glide path. So at 22, 26, 49, so that's 49 seconds, local, Mezzer began to flare, still aiming 1,000 feet before the threshold. The mishap aircraft, left and right main gear, impacted the two innermost localizer antennas while traveling at 165 knots. The impact damaged the left main landing gear, rotated the wheel perpendicular to the direction of travel, split hydraulic lines creating a system B failure, and severed the left drag brace front mount from the aircraft body and left it hanging by the rear mount, which was still attached to the wheel. After impacting the localizer antenna, the mishap pilot initiated a go-around, but the mishap aircraft briefly touched down in the underrun, remaining on the ground for approximately 330 feet, and lifting back into the air approximately 470 feet prior to the beginning of the runway. All right, so short aim point, land short, damage the gear. F-16 has two hydraulic systems, the A system and the B system. So with the severed line, now he's just operating on the A system hydraulic, which again, it's redundancy. Next few pages actually have pictures of what the airport environment looks like at daytime. So at 22, 27, and 30 seconds, or about 45 seconds later, oh, sorry, it says at 50 seconds after impact, the localizer antenna, the mishap pilot radioed to the mishap element lead, who had executed a low approach and was flying in the airspace near Shaw, that he had landed short, had a hydraulic pressure light, and the gear were stuck down. So pretty normal for number three. He leads number four back, again, number four being measure, to the field. They shoot an instrument approach, and he drops measure off so three does a go around um, he's his instructor pilot so we'll make sure he gets back on the ground safely and i'm guessing because he got gas 
depending on the time, he was going to make sure Mezzer was on the ground safely and then potentially head back out to Bulldog for the fight. Again, it doesn't go into that, but pretty common. Uh, 20 seconds later, the mishap pilot declared an in-flight emergency with the tower and stated he had 30 minutes of fuel remaining, and number three rejoined to inspect Mezzer's damaged aircraft. So at 22.31, so about four minutes after this, uh, based on the mishap aircraft system B failure, the mishap pilot and the mishap element lead began reviewing the single hydraulic failure checklist. They do this for approximately a minute, and all three of the landing gear safe indications, three green as I call it, went away and never returned. So a few seconds later, the mishap pilot and the mishap element lead contacted the SOF, again, the supervisor of flying. That is another F-16 pilot who has been assigned the duty in the tower for the night. Uh, his job is, again, to be that link between air traffic control and any F-16s that are airborne. While visually inspecting the mishap aircraft, number three reported to Mezer and to the SOF that the left main landing gear was broken and was hanging with the front drag brace at 90 degree at a 90 degree angle, but the right main landing gear and nose landing gear appeared to be normal. Based on this, uh, both the element lead, the mishap pilot, and the supervisor of flying transitioned to the landing with landing uh, unsafe slash up indication, landing gear unsafe slash up. This is a beast of a checklist. Um, it's the worst, nah, I mean, it's one of the worst ones in the, in the F-16. So, uh, night, um, obviously keyed up, and now have multiple issues going on. This is a really challenging spot for anyone to be in. So, as the SOP began the landing with landing gear unsafe slash up checklist, he stated that it directs the pilot to refer to ejection if conditions are not favorable before proceeding to the rest of the checklist. Big point here, asterisk foot, foot stomp, is number one step in the checklist is if you don't have favorable landing gear, it recommends you to eject because the F-16, the possibility of rolling, tumbling, ground looping is very high if you have a weird configuration. So it, break down, it breaks down which gear configuration or gear setting that would recommend that. So um, that is something to remember for the rest of this. All right. Looks like for the next 10 minutes, the soft number three and number four discuss courses of action. During the discussion, the mishap pilot, so Mezer, asked on two separate occasions if the landing with landing gear unsafe slash up checklist was applicable based on the state of the mishap aircraft's left main landing gear and the presence of steps in the checklist the group knew should not be accomplished. So he knows there's damage to the aircraft and he's also asking, you know, they're skipping steps or saying steps are probably in a is what I'm guessing here based on the statement or not applicable based on what they're seeing there. On each occasion, the soft did not directly answer Mezzer's question. And after the second time, let's see, after the second time, the mishap pilot questioned the checklist usage, the element lead. So number three reviewed the checklist once more and stated that he believed the checklist was appropriate based on the mishap aircraft's nose landing gear appeared down in lock, which the mishap element lead understood to mean that the mishap aircraft was in a landable configuration. So there, number three is thinking, and number, um, and the soft for this matter, 
thinking that the aircraft has a safe or a landable configuration. Sounds like Mezzer has a few questions about that. All right. They continue to execute the checklist and to execute a cable arrestment option with that checklist. So at 22.42, we're almost 15 minutes later, for about five minutes, both the element lead and the softs, number three and the soft, emphasize on four occasions the importance of a go-around following a failed engagement. So this checklist drives you all the way down to a cable engagement. So at Air Force bases, fighter bases particularly, we have cables, just like the Navy does on boats. Ours are for emergencies. Theirs are for everyday use. But at Shaw, I want to say there's probably six or eight cables. I can't remember correctly. But there will be approach-in cables, departure-in cables, and there will be cables in the over and under runs. So there's a lot of options to stop aircraft. So, again, number three in the software, just emphasizing the importance of a go-around in the event of a missed cable engagement because he's going to be doing an approach-in cable engagement, which is um, definitely more challenging because you must land prior to the cable and give the hook enough time to settle on the runway to catch the cable. It's different. I've had uh, brake failures on the runway where I take a departure in cable. Definitely not as much fun as uh, just stopping the aircraft normally, but it's not. It's definitely not as sporty as doing an approach and arrestment. All right, so it goes on to talk about different type of arrestment. The main thing is allowing the hook to settle on the runway. So you need to land before, be nice and stable, and then give the cable or the hook the greatest probability of catching that cable as it goes over it. And again, there are a lot of different cables and a lot of different options. The next couple of pages actually show pictures of the cable and an F-16 taking the cable. So in the checklist, the Lockheed Martin Aerospace Company, located in Fort Worth, is available for in-flight emergency technical assistance. And it's called a conference hotel. So the supervisor of flying has a phone number in his checklist up there where he can call Lockheed Martin both during normal business, business hours and after business hours to ask questions. So this is one of those scenarios where it's kind of non-standard, it's definitely non-standard rather, and would warrant a call to Lockheed Martin to get their engineers on the phone and hopefully determine what the best course of action is or what their recommendation is. So from 2228, so right as after the mishap to 2247, while the tower was supporting the mishap pilot, the soft coordinated for the immediate return of all 20th fighter wing aircraft and discuss the nature of the mishap aircraft's damage and possible course of action with the top three and the ops group brick holder. So while this is going on, the soft is also doing other things. They've go ahead and they've done a recall with all aircraft that are airborne because they want to get them back. Um, because they don't know what's going to happen and the field might shut down and they're trying to remove pieces of the equation that they don't need to worry about. So get aircraft back and let's not worry about any more problems and let's minimize our risk here. He also talks to the top three, which is going to be most likely another fighter pilot that is assigned to the 77th that's sitting inside the 77th fighter squadron. Uh, He's going to be an instructor pilot or an evaluator, so an experienced guy. And then the brick holder, which is Again, the colonels, the 06s, uh, first are representative. Most likely in this case, it's either the deputy ops group commander or one of the squadron commanders. So guys who are 15, 20 years into the career and a lot of Viper time and uh, fighter experience there. 
All right, moving down the report here. So there is actually a soft number two in the report, which is an upgrading soft. So there's two F-16 pilots sitting up in the tower there. Um, let's see, it goes, yeah, the F-16 flight manual states because of the number of possibilities and malfunctions and specific procedures for every situation, and every situation is not feasible. That's why you have a conference hotel if time and conditions permit. And so the soft checklist as part of the emergency aircraft checklist, uh, reference the conference hotel and recommends it again if time and conditions permit there. So soft one and soft two had discussed the conference hotel procedures earlier in the evening, but did not discuss them during the mishap. Soft two thought about the merits of executing a conference hotel, but did not verbalize them. So that's another thing. Again, you can't uh, armchair quarterback it, but food for thought if you find yourself in a situation like that speaking up uh, even though if you're the inexperienced person in the room, might be valuable. Uh, the soft chose not to execute the conference hotel with Lockheed Martin because he believed the landing with landing gear unsafe slash up was the appropriate checklist and provided ad- adequate direction for the situation. So again, uh, not not warranting it, or they don't think it's war- or he doesn't think it's warranted, and they don't really pursue it. Honestly, I can't fault him. Um, it obviously we've used conference hotels, but it's it's a very very rare thing. All right, so at the time, they're also saying that three of the four flight safety engineers who support F sixteen conference hotel calls were available. They would have called it's after hours, so security would have redirected and patched the phone call over to one of the engineers for that. The engineers were also questioned. They said. They were aware of two previous instances of damaged landing gear similar to Messer's aircraft in this case. In both instances, an injection was performed instead of attempting a cable arrestment. So, 22.46 and 45 seconds, Messer lowered his hook at level flight and 222 knots. And the element leads, the number three, reported to Messer that his hook appeared to be extended normally. At 22.47, the soft radioed that he had coordinated the plan with the top three and the OG brick holder. So there's a lot of people involved in this, again, backing one another up. For the next five minutes, the mishap pilot, mishap element lead, and the supervisor flying discussed approaching cable arrestment procedures, including location of the cable, desired landing attitude and location, the importance of a go-around if the cable is not engaged, and the imperative of ejection in the event the left wing contacted the ground. Because of the damage to the left main landing gear, it would not have been able to support the weight of the mishap aircraft. But they, they didn't know that. And the F-16 flight manual directs to go around the venomous cable engagement and warns of a ground loop. It's a very dangerous event, as it says. It may occur if the wing is allowed to contact the ground. So that's bad news. All right. Due to the damage caused on the four left localizer antennas, which is located at the beginning of runway 22 right, vertical guidance was not available the mishap pilot executed a visual approach to 04 left. So using those pappies. At 22.53, so we're almost 30 minutes, not quite 25 minutes uh, after this, Mezzer began to turn toward the field uh, to land and reported he had 1,500 pounds of fuel. So normal recovery fuel on the block 50 F-16s, 1,200 pounds. He's got 300 pounds of slop there, so enough to initiate a go around and, and bring it back around for probably one or two more attempts. Not a ton of gas, but... Not a situation, uh, not not a terrible spot to be. 
At uh, 22.53 and 52 seconds, as Mezzer maneuvered for the final approach, the element lead asked for the mishap pilot to confirm that his right main landing gear and his nose, li- nose landing gear were both still indicating as down and locked. Mezzer responded that he had no green lights. So again, a normal indication for landing would be three green lights, indicating that the wheels are down and locked. After referencing the landing with landing gear unsafe up checklist, once again, the soft recommended that despite all gear indicating unsafe, that Mezzer continue with the approach in cable arrestment because the gear appeared down and locked, and it was unlikely that they had become unlocked while airborne. The landing gear lights not illuminating despite being down and locked is consistent with a short circuit in the left main landing gear. All right, approximately three minutes later, Mezzer reported the field in sight, and 16 seconds later, he received clearance to land on 04 left. He began a visual descent using those pappies and radioed that his AOA bracket, so his angle of attack bracket, was not displayed in the HUD. This, this is consistent with a left main landing gear short circuit. So in F-16, you use angle of attack for your speed and landing. I'll see if I can find a photo, and I'll, I'll post one of those on, on the podcast website as well. So the uh, Mishap Element League counseled the Mishap pilot to use the AOA indicator by his left leg. Again, this would be a good visual. Um, I know there are pictures out there, so I'll, I'll definitely post it. But this is a challenging thing. I have You do HUD out um, approaches and landings in the emergency procedure sim that you do almost every month. Um, it's not an uncommon thing, but I can tell you it's definitely more challenging, especially at night, because you're having to look between your legs for your AOA indicator, um, depending on what his lights are and if the lights aren't working, et cetera. This is, a, this is a challenging thing to do between having to look down and look back out versus just to look straight through the HUD. So this just amplifies the problem just a little bit more. By a little bit, it could be pretty significant. Now the SOF and the tower reported that his landing light was not illuminating, so the landing light is on the nose landing gear, uh, which would make the touchdown darker than usual, as it says. Yeah, no kidding, not having a landing light is also going to make this challenging because your your depth perception is already jacked up at night and now you can't see the runway, ground rush. This sucks. This is a challenging spot to be in. All right, at uh, 2259, so we're about uh, yeah 30 plus minutes, 33 minutes or so after this all began, the mishap aircraft touched down 730 feet prior to the approach in cable on runway four left with the hook lower throttled idle on approximately four degrees of left roll. So he touches down, um, touches down well, and you want to be at least give that cable 500 or 500 feet prior so it can settle out. So he's doing that. The lower portion of the hook assembly just prior to the hook itself impacted the cable, but the engagement was unsuccessful. There are several potential reasons an aircraft can miss a cable engagement and engineers identify and analyze nine possible reasons following this mishap. So the possible reasons include runway conditions, the aircraft installed part, settings, pressures, known aircraft system anomalies, geometric relationship between the hook and the cable at contact. Most of these reasons affect the hook in known ways. And the fact that the cable impacted the hook shank five inches above the hook itself precludes most of these reasons. So a lot there. Again, they go, they dig down into this. The remaining three possible reasons. So they eliminate some and they say there's three possible reasons uh, all involving changing geometry between the hook and the cable at contact. So there's some kind of geometric relationship here between the hook and the cable as to why on this initial attempt, Mezzer's hook did not catch. 
So there's the first one. The hook is intended to be able to pivot upon contact with the cable, and a shear bolt exists to hold the hook in place until contacting the cable. In some instances, the bolt may break prematurely. Uh, allowing the hook to pivot to one side before contacting the cable, which would in turn cause the hook to not contact the cable directly perpendicular. The F-16 flight manual includes a caution to lower the hook while wings level to prevent a failure of the bolt, which Messer did correctly. But the bolt may have sheared before touchdown as the aircraft approached the cable or during the subsequent crash. So they don't know if the shear bolt broke or failed prior to it or if it failed after the crash. Uh, the second reason the hook requires some distance between the landing on the runway and contacting the cable to stabilize along the ground to present itself to the cable. While the mishap aircraft touched down in excess of the rest recommended distance, so he touched down 730 feet prior to the cable, so well enough time in theory for that cable to set or the hook to settle, the crash survival flight data recorder reported several cycles of the right main landing gear. Uh, carrying the weight of the mishap aircraft, indicating that the aircraft was possibly not stabilized as it approached the cable. So he's got two wheels here. Not surprising to me, or at least I think probably anyone, the fact that this aircraft is probably bobbling. If you look at F-16's landing, tiny little wheelbase, uh, teeter-tottering back and forth is not uncommon, especially when you have one wheel that's all jacked up here. But again, they couldn't determine it, uh, and they have one other reason the damaged left main landing gear may have disturbed the cable as it passed over it in such a way that the hook was no longer properly positioned to engage. Data is unavailable to model the likely effects of the cable since there are no known approach in arrestments with damage and hanging main landing gear components. So his uh, bad left wheel could have hit the cable and disturbed it. All right, continuing on. At four and a half seconds after touchdown and probably, I'm sorry, and traveling approximately 1,100 and eight feet at 138 knots ground speed, the mishap aircraft rolled 14 degrees of left bank, indicating the left main landing gear had failed to support the weight of the aircraft and the left wing had contacted the runway. The mishap pilot commanded full right roll. Over the next one and a half seconds, the mishap aircraft began to drift to the left and the mishap pilot momentarily commanded full nose up while increasing the throttle to afterburner. The mishap pilot then stopped providing flight control inputs and uh, to activate the mishap aircraft, or sorry, he provide he stopped providing control inputs to the mishap aircraft as he eject, he activated his ejection seat. The mishap aircraft continued veering left and departed the runway into the grass field, flipped nose over tail, and came to rest upside down in a large parking uh, apron. So uh, gives pictures of this on zero four left as he departs off to the left hand side. The aircraft is departing towards the main side of base. Uh, about midfield, I don't know, he's probably 1,000 or 1,500 feet or so away from the massive hangar on Shaw, and then the next is all the other F-16 parking. All right. Now, this goes into egress and aircrew flight equipment. So the F-16 is equipped with advanced concept ejection seat. That's an ACES-2 ejection seat. And both F-16 flight manual and ACES-2 ejection seat academic material state that the ejection seat and the parachute are capable of a successful ejection for all landing gear failure scenarios with ground speeds up to 200 knots. So the mishap pilot commanded an ejection while experiencing a landing gear failure at 120 knots uh, ground speed. At approximately 2259.33 local, 751 feet past the cable, mishap pilot pulled the ejection handle, initiating the ejection at 129 knots. 
with 8 degrees nose high and 16 degrees left bank. Based on the airspeed and altitude of the ejection, the mishap seat should have initiated a mode 1 ejection. So, three different modes of the ACES 2 ejection seat, at least in the F-16, and it's based upon altitude, airspeed, and a few other parameters, but it's going to determine how quickly your chute opens. So, as the seat exits the aircraft, the digital recovery sequencer, DRS, that's going to be important, is activated. And that's responsible for providing seat stabilization, pilot slash seat separation, and parachute deployment. So, man seat separation, that's pilot seat separation. In this case, he's low to the ground. He basically pulls the handle, and he should have an immediate open opening shock and one, maybe two swings underneath the canopy. If you're higher at altitude the seat is not going to deploy the parachute. You know, if you're up in the 40s, you're going to be strapped into the seat, pointed straight down at the earth, and falling into the mid-teens before you actually get man seat separation. That's so you can get down because it's pretty cold and there's not a lot of oxygen up there. Versus if you're down low, obviously you need an inflated chute quickly in order to arrest your descent. So he should be in a mode one ejection at this point. All right, when uh, measure initiated the ejection, the sequence proceeded as expected until the mishap seat left the aircraft, at which point a critical failure in the DRS, so that digital recovery system, sorry, the digital recovery sequencer um, had a failure. And this failure uh, resulted in a sequencer control of all subsequent actions. Six of the seven pyrotechnic devices in the seat should have activated during the mishap pilot's ejection. However, the DRS failure resulted in none of them activating. And a subsequent failure of the stabilization gyro, trajectory divergence rocket motor, the harness release thruster, true drogue chute severance cutters, and the primary parachute deployment cartridge. So, bottom line, he's got a bad seat. Um, that's just that's, that's kind of unbelievable. Um, it goes into a lot more detail on the seat, into the beeps and squeaks more or less, but the um, the details of the scenario, well, what if he pulled the man seat, uh, the manual override handle? So there is a handle on your right thigh that you can pull, and it's going to force man seat separation. So they looked at this. Um, so measures trajectory resulted in being airborne for 6.27 seconds. The Air Force Research Laboratory analysis concluded that Meser had a total of 3.475 seconds from when the seat left the aircraft to pull the uh, the handle, the man seat separation there, so manual override handle, and achieve a successful parachute deployment. If Meser had executed a controlled ejection based on the locally developed controlled ejection procedures, which directed a controlled ejection between two and 3,000 feet AGL above ground level, he would have had between 13.9 and 18.3 seconds to pull the handle. Neither of these time windows take into account other factors, and this underlying foot stomp, right, because if I put myself in Mezzer's situation, and arguably probably any other pilot, no chance whatsoever of pulling this handle. Uh, I know there's no way I would have. So um, it's saying it doesn't take into account the other factors, including the initial incapacitation of the G-force from pulling the handle. It uh, doesn't take into account the darkness, uh, the seat stabilization not happening, rotating, rolling. And then do these factors, um, you know, it's time to recognize the seat's failure would have been very, it had been critical to overcoming the DRS failure there. 
So in 2014, an F-16 instructor pilot at Tulsa Air National Guard with over 2,600 flight hours experienced a similar DRS failure during an uncontrolled ejection near Moline, Kansas. In that ejection, the DRS successfully sent firing signals to the stabilization to stabilize the ejection seat, but neither the pilot, uh, but neither pilot slash seat separation nor parachute deployment occurred. The instructor pilot he had to pull uh, the handle. He ejected at 7,500 feet above the ground, and this was during the daytime fair weather ejection with far more experience than Meser. It required approximately four seconds for him to recognize the failure and had to pull the, uh, the handle there to get man seat separation. So far better, better scenario for the Tulsa guy and far more experience. Uh, Meser just did not have a chance, in my opinion. I think most people would agree with that. All right, the report goes on, and it talks about crash fire recovery. All those guys were in the spots they were supposed to be. Um, it took them a while to find Meser based on the uh, – yeah, you know, the environment, it was dark, the trajectory being unknown, uh, no shoot. So they found him, uh, they life-saving measures, but, uh, en route, they, they, uh, said he was deceased. So that's pretty tough to read, right? That's one thing that, uh, you bank upon the fact that you have your get out of jail free card by pulling the handle and that seat should work. All right. We're gonna keep digging through the report here. So the next section goes into the maintenance piece. So it had two related maintenance issues with a mishap aircraft that the, the board found. It was a time compliance technical order, TCTO. One, installation of a shortening plug on the DRS, so that digital recovery sequencer again, was not completed on the mishap, care, mishap aircraft prior to the mishap. The shortening plug was designed to prevent noise bias issues observed in channels three and four of the system of the DRS. DRS failures due to channel three noise bias issues have been observed in approximately 9% of all live ejection uh, and sled tests. So that uh, fix was issued on 20 January 2016 and was accomplished during the next 36-month uh, ejection seat inspection. The first opportunity to accomplish this was on 28 August 2017, but it was not accomplished due to the lack of available parts. The requirement was automatically deferred to the next 36-month seat inspection, which was 28 August 20. So it's about two months later. All right, the second related issue is the DRS itself. 10-year shelf slash service life. It expired on 28 February 2019. It received three temporary shelf slash service life expansion or extensions. Those are approved by the Air Force Life Cycle Management Center. The first extension was approved on 4 February 2019 due to a lack of parts. It was good through 30 September 2019. The second extension was approved on 26 September, so just a few days before it expired. Makes sense. And that was due to a lack of parts as well. That ex uh, extension was good through 30 June of 2020. The parts became available, and a third and final extension was approved, and that was on 27 May 2020. And that was uh, approved for maintenance consolidation effort. So trying to keep a jet on the line and knock out all the maintenance at once versus taking it off the line, putting it back on, taking it off the line. So, so Mishap Aircraft's DRS was scheduled to be replaced with a upgraded seat sequencer, a modernized ACES-2 seat sequencer, mass, while the Mishap Aircraft was scheduled down 
for cannibalization maintenance on 8 July 2020 through 21 August 2020. So that jet was coming off the line in eight days, and they were going to cannibalize it. So, I mean, they're going to take parts out of that and fix bad jets with it. And they just, they, they, that's a routine maintenance thing. You cycle a jet through cannibalization. But I tell you what, that's, uh, that's pretty crappy timing. Eight days. So, report goes on. Yeah, several pages in uh, regarding maintenance, looking at supervision other issues with the jet. Nothing's glaring or pops out. Just a few minor things here and there. Then it goes into operations, so the pilot side of the house. Um, they talked about Meser. He was a distinguished graduate from UPT, so undergraduate pilot training, and earned a Top Gun award during IFF, so Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals. He was lauded for his work ethic, his emergency procedures performance, and time management, and had an overall uh, rating of average and then during MQT, he was graded slightly above average on stuff. So all it means is distinguished graduate. He graduated in the top of his class at uh, undergraduate pilot training. So he he's a good pilot. And then his Top Gun Award at IFF, again, reinforcing the fact that uh, he's doing well. His overall average rating, as far as a fighter pilot goes, that means he's good. Um, you got to be Robin Olds to get anything better than that. So average is slightly above average. He's doing solid, doing good work. Um, it goes back and looks at his 30, 60, 90 day fly history and sorties. The thing that I think pops out and is noted in here due to uh, coronavirus mitigation measures and adverse weather earlier in the upgrade program, he'd only completed six upgrade events. So, you know, the biggest thing is the more you fly, the, the, the better it is. And unfortunately with everything going on, he's just not getting a lot of reps. Um, so being proficient and being current are two different things. And unfortunately, he's just not getting a whole lot of flight time here. Talks about soft flight lead, other pilots, everyone else is qualified. There's nothing as far as pathology, lifestyle, crew rest, things of that nature. Again, everyone's pretty experienced and uh, dialed in here. Uh, then it's looking at squadron leadership and supervision. I already mentioned the risk management they identified early, but you know the leadership in the 77th Fighter Squadron had established a back-to-the-basics initiative, uh, and they did this as a result of the uh, reduced flying, anticipated loss of proficiency, um, and just making sure that everyone's focusing on the basic uh, stuff, which often gets left, and definitely as you aren't flying that much, those skill sets start to dull. There is a lengthy section here, and it's talking about MQT students not executing events such as seed at night until they've demonstrated proficiency in similar events. Um, you know, the objective piece of this is, yeah, don't do that. The subjective piece of it is you're asking the fighter squadrons to, to do a lot with less, uh, in my opinion. So um, regulations drive the fact that, you know, he should not have been doing seed uh, until he'd flown a seed sortie during the day. Uh, unless they put a IP in his cockpit, which is just something you just don't do that often in the F-16. We have two-seaters, but very rare do you put an instructor in the backseat unless you absolutely have to. So um, digging further, this is one of those things that I think is just lost. There are so many regulations and Air Force instructions that it got buried. So the mishap pilot, therefore, was not allowed to execute a C-mission that was planned and and scheduled. It's the one they were going to have to do. 
Uh, it says the 20th Ops Group syllabus, so the MQT syllabus, the one he's doing for his uh, combat mission ready readiness, specifically authorizes any training sortie during an upgrade to be accomplished at night and goes on to specify possible adjustments to the syllabus in case uh, that all primary mission training sorties are accomplished at night uh, in violation of the MQT limitations listed, yada, yada, yada. So the 77th Fighter Squadron leadership was aware the missile pilot had not accomplished seed before the sortie, but was not aware of the restrictions on night events, and the limitation was violated when the missile pilot was scheduled for a seed training sortie. So again, this kind of goes back to, if you read it, there's a whole slew of things that are referenced here. Um, and, and I mean, the standard excuse is there's no excuse for not knowing, but I can completely empathize with the fact that these guys were referencing, you know, their guidance for the ops group syllabus, uh, and then didn't go digging everywhere else to find out what they couldn't do. So in their mind, they're completely legal to go out there and fly the seat sortie at night, uh, because that's what the syllabus, the OG syllabus says. All right. It also says that soft upgrading must accomplish their upgrade underneath an experienced soft. But the Shawler Force Base supplement fails to identify what qualifies as an experienced soft. All right. And, yeah, OG must you know, ensure that the soft training includes a thorough review of checklist procedures. And during the upgrade, softs are only exposed to conference hotel procedure in two ways. One of those 14 tasks in the review of local guidance, which includes, among other things, a soft QRC where conference hotel is one of the 37 referenced responses. So yeah, it's, it's buried in there and it's definitely not one of those things that is at the forefront of your mind. You're going to go to the checklist and probably, I mean, I'm going to go off my experience. So again, I can't fault these guys. Uh, you know, if I put myself in their situation, um, I don't know if I would have done the conference hotel. I'll be honest. And the report it goes in and out starts nailing down different types of human factors. Um, a lot of words that go into it. We've discussed a whole bunch of it up until this point. The report concludes with a one-page uh, summary report, which is what I led or led in with, which is that bottom line up front, um, you know, the cause of the mishap. So, again, mishaps pilot failure to correctly interpret the approach lighting system and identify the runway threshold during his landing attempt which resulted in severely damaged landing gear. Evidence also indicates that the missile pilot was not fully engaged on the challenges of flying at night, uh, night instrument approach due to his unsuccessful attempt to conduct his first air, night aerial refueling, which again, that was not allowed by Air Force regulation. So set up for uh, failure in that, in that point. And again, I can completely empathize where Mezzer's uh, head was at, I think, there because no one wants to be letting other people down and having a mission canceled because of them. So it's, it's tough to just uh, shrug it off and focus on what's next. In fact, uh, the board president, that two-star general, said, I believe the mishap pilot was distracted and dwelling on his early unsuccessful air refueling attempt, which may have contributed to misinterpreting runway visual cues. On the night of the mishap, the direct impact of the mishap pilot's unsuccessful air refueling was two aircraft returning home early, meaning the entire mission was ineffective for training purposes. The mishap pilot was a distinguished graduate from undergraduate pilot training and, a, and had a solid performance record. And again, not mentioned here, but he was a prior C-17 evaluator, so he's a solid dude all the way around. I believe he did his absolute best during his first ever aerial refueling attempt and was disappointed with his performance. The mishap pilot twice verbally expressed frustration with himself 
as heard on the cockpit voice recording. The first time was during his aero fuel attempt, and again while descending on final approach to Shaw. Um, the board president, substantial, substantially contributing factors. So things that led to this. Two things. The soft chose not to consult the aircraft manufacturer resulted in the decision to attempt a cable arrestment in lieu of a controlled ejection. And the second being a series of ejection seat malfunctions occurred, which resulted in the mishap pilot impacting the ground while still in the seat. So that goes on for two pages. Uh, Digging into that. And again, I think we've, we've talked about it and people can, you can quickly go from point A to point B with that. So this is a tough one to read. I mean, at the end of the day, loss of life um, over a couple minor mistakes, right? But those minor mistakes happen at, at speeds and in positions that the tolerance for error is just so small. So with that, um, if you're looking to support a good cause, lieutenantsmithsfoundation.org. You can read this accident report. And I'll put it up on uh, the afterburnpodcast.com as well as a link to his foundation. So you can go over there and support a good cause. But thanks for listening to the podcast. I'll see you guys in two weeks. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain.